Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, I want to say good evening to everyone out there, and this is Greg Rashid again, the host of the Root and Roots show, heard Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time if you're listening live, but a lot of folks listen on a delayed basis either on blogtalkradio.com later on or on iTunes because they finally put us on iTunes. That's really great. We're getting a lot of followers out of that. And also on KUHS Radio Denver, thanking Henry Archuleta, the founder of that KUHS Denver Radio and Television. So I want to say hi to my friends out there, and you hear me on a delayed basis there. And I'm going to start this off because we have a special show tonight. We're doing – I love talking about Fannie Lou Hamer, the great, great civil and human rights activist. And I'm going to be doing – we're going to be doing her music tonight. So I'm going to start off with Fannie Lou Hamer singing, Woke Up With My Mind, Stayed On Freedom on the Root & Root Show. Woke up this morning with my mind Walking and talking with my mind 
I was getting so much into that, I almost forgot to come back on the air. I just love hearing Fannie Lou Hamer sing, and, and I'm just honored because we have here this evening the producer of the new CD, but it's actually it's old in a sense because it was originally a limited edition cassette, but it's out on CD on the Smithsonian Folkways uh Records and this is uh, Fannie Lou Hamer songs my mother taught me and I'm honored to have Mark I hope I get your last name right Perrier who is the uh, creator for the Smithsonian Institute and also the producer of the CD are you there Mark Yes I am Greg and you did get my name right and thank you for having me on your show Well thank you first off for bringing this back because. I've only had, I have to say this, and listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. only thing I've had on Fannie Lou, and I, this is going to be a repetition for a lot of folks out there, but I believe as in the church, as ministers do, you have to repeat things a number of times for people to understand. And we've had a number of shows over the years on this station and on other stations I've been on throughout the country talking about the legendary Fannie Lou Hamer. But this will be the first time we concentrate on her music because I only had the Voices of the Civil Rights Movement double CD sex, uh, selection and then had, I believe, three Fannie Lou Hamer songs. And I've played those over and over again over the years. So I'm just grateful that you have produced this one, Songs My Mother Taught Me by Fannie Lou Hamer. And talk about, you know, just the genesis of this whole project. Well, Greg, I, I can't take full credit for this project. Um, it was it was something that I consider somewhat gifted to me uh, by the people who had the vision to put this together. Back in uh, 1987, Bernice Johnson Reagan, who many of your listeners may be familiar with, was oh, yes. working at the Smithsonian, and she convened a conference uh Songs of the Civil Rights Movement, which that disc you mentioned, the Folkways two-record two disc you mentioned, or two-CD disc nowadays, um, came out of. And it was during her planning stages that another very, very talented and very dedicated folklorist by the name of Worth Long approached Bernice and said, you know, it would be great if there was something we could have as a takeaway uh, that's the current term, but really he was thinking of the people who came and attended this conference at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. So he had himself done some field recordings, and he knew other people had done field recordings where um, they captured uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Mrs. Hamer, singing. They actually have, as you see on the CD, an interview with her, which I hope we have a chance to listen to, that was recorded in her home. Um, and worth went uh, to the trouble of compiling this and putting it all together, and then they essentially made the cassette. They got permission. Fannie Lou had passed at that time. Right. And they um, they got permission from her husband, Pap, Pap Hamer, excuse me, to uh, do this, and um, they put together the cassette. It was a very... Uh, it was, you know, a very low-budget production, not to say it was a bad production. It was just, you know, it didn't have liner notes. It basically had a cassette J card uh, mentioning what was in it and the tracks on it and a nice picture of uh, Mrs. Hamer. However, um, this was the recordings that I worked with and in working to 
present this and produce this CD that you have now under Smithsonian Folkways uh, series, which is called the African American Legacy Series. So that's really, really how that came about. Worth Worth was the was the mastermind behind this. He he put it together. He had met Mrs. Hamer a number of times, and he worked extensively in the South uh, during this time. Uh, very much a visionary. Yes, certainly, and uh, you are too. To, you know, to have this, you know, to produce this now, and it's it's so timely too with what's going on in the country with Black Lives Matter and just other things as far as like the civil rights movement. More or less, the human rights movement is just, it has an end. It never ends. It never ends at that, all. Very good point. I think this, you know, being the 50th anniversary of Lyndon Baines Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act, it's very timely. It's very important. And as you put it so well, it's not just, uh, it's all of us. You know, it's the United States in a sense, even though there are obviously forces at work that would like to roll this back. Uh, roll us back to a, a time when people didn't have rights, and 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 I think we witnessed that with uh, the various incidents we're having with police actions, with other legislative actions, and even up to the Supreme Court, where you have justices saying, um, you know, I don't think these provisions of the Voting Rights Act are necessary anymore. Right. I don't see it now. You know, which is uh, on its face. I'll just say it's absurd for for us to accept that statement or a statement of that type from a man of very much of privilege. I know. I mean, it certainly is. We have discussed that on the show before, as well as the fact that you can't believe 50 years later we're still talking about the Confederate flag and the Deep South and just, you know, just Jim Crow sneaking back again. And I know that you wonder sometimes, and I always think about that, as folks like Fannie Lou Hamer, are they, like, just turning over in their grave and just, like, shaking their heads and they're just saying, oh, gee, you know, all the work we did and it still continues. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I can't, I could, <laughs> I can't, I, I'm chuckling because, uh, you know, that's a, a question of that I don't think anyone has the answer to except uh, her spirit. However, to talk right. of her spirit... And and the fact that we are where we are now as a nation is a testament to the fact that we have missed decades, literally decades of a chance to educate our population properly. And we are having to learn this over again. We're having to, and you, you said this at the top of your show, that, you know, the preachers repeat things. Well, we're repeating this again. And it's it's... I'm glad the CD is out because not only do you get to hear her speak, you get to hear her sing. Um, the songs she's singing, you know, they're polysomatic. They have double meanings. They have so much message in right. them. If you put them in context, um, just the song This Little Light of Mine seems, you know, like it could be a child song or, or you know, something very simple. But really, it's, it's, there's defiance in her presentation of the song that, you know, no well, matter what you do, and what forces you come at me with, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to shine. I'm going to be a person. I'm going to stay here. And you, in defiance of all that you've thrown at me. And that's that's really, I think, if, if Fannie Lou Hamer had anything to say. And she said that, you know, if, if um, uh, you know, they, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the quote right in front of me, but if, in, in her struggle for voting rights in Mississippi, you know, if they killed me, I'm going to fall, fall five feet forward. 
in this struggle. You know, you can't That's stop right. me. I'm still going to go forward. So, and 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 I think it uh, it's really interesting because, as well that that um, you must be aware, Robin Hamilton, the filmmaker, just released uh, this little light of mine, the legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer, a documentary. And um, if your guest uh, listeners don't realize that, that is something they should look up. It's again, right, this little uh, light had of mine. The, uh... We had the oh, author had of the, uh, the biography, you know, of her biography earlier this year, and she was yeah, talking about that. how she helped with the film. And we're hoping, yeah. I'm hoping to have the the director, the producer of that film on here because it would really be great. And I am working on that, but I'm oh, going to play good. right now. I think we'll do yeah, on uh, Fannie Lou Hamer on being a sharecropper because I believe that's in her home. I right, think that's that recorded one of the in her home, and it was it was after. Uh, her efforts with the Mississippi Freedom Dem- Democratic Party at the 1964 Democratic Convention in Atlantic City was a year later. All right. Well, so we're going to hear that, yeah. right? Oh, go ahead. What were you about to say? No, I was saying go ahead with the with the uh, with the track. All right. We're going to hear right now Fannie Lou Hamer talking about on being a sharecropper on the Root and Root Show. I was born 1917 in Montgomery County, October 6th. Sharecropping is as bad as it is now, but the difference, we didn't have to have machines as such to gather the uh, crops at that time because uh, being from a huge family, my mother and father had 20 children. I'm the 20th child and the 6 year and 14 boys. They had enough children, you know, that they could gather the crop every year. But the point was, we never did get anything out of the crop. We would pick 50 and 60 bales of cotton, and I can remember very well, because when I first started picking cotton, I was about six years old. And the landowner told me one day if I would pick 30 pounds, he would give me something out of the commissary, something like a little store, what they have now. But at the time, they was calling them commissary. And he told me if I would pick 30 pounds of cotton that week, he would give me some Cracker Jacks and uh, Daddy Wide Legs and sardines and things, the things that he knew that I would love and had never had a chance to have. So I picked 30 pounds that week, and I was sick. Well, the next week, you see, I had to pick six, and by the time I was 18, I was picking two and three hundred pounds. But my family, we always could, you know, gather our own crops and all, and we would make 50 and 60 bales of cotton, and then wouldn't have enough to live on, to clear enough money to live on in the winter months, because we didn't have electric lights or anything like that at the time, old houses, it was very bad. So my father, you know, just kept sharecropping until one year on this plantation. He cleared some money. It must have been quite a little bit because he bought some wagons and cultivators and plow tools and a search that he could rent the next year. So about time he got the land rented, they were repairing our house, and we had to move out of that house into another house until they repaired the damage on this old house that he was in. So during that time, a white man went to our lot one night 
and went to the trough where the mules had to eat because they didn't have tractors and things like they have now. But he went there and he got a, a gallon of Paris green and he stirred it up into the mules' food and he killed everything he had. By that time, my father was beginning to get old because my parents were old people when I was born. And they never did get a chance to get up again. So uh, they share crops right on until all the kids got out. And by the time most of the kids married and left home, some of them left at an early age, at 18 and 20 like that, and went into other states to try to, you know, make a more decent living. And by the time I got of age, then I had to take care of my own parents. But before I got old enough, I used to watch my mother in particular that would try to keep her family going after we wouldn't get enough money out of the cotton crop to uh, feed us during the winter months. Mama would go around from plantation to plantation, and she would ask the landowners, you know, could she have the cotton that had been left, which was called scrapping cotton, and when they would tell her that we could, you know, have that cotton, we would walk for miles and miles and miles in the run of a week. And we wouldn't have on shoes or anything because we didn't have them. She would always tie our feet up with rags, and the ground would be frozen real hard. And she would walk, walk, you know, from field to field until we would scrap the bale of cotton. And then she'd take that uh, bale of cotton after she scrapped it and sell it. And that would give us you know, some of the food that we would need. And then she would go from house to house, and she would help kill hogs in the winter months, and they would give her the uh, intestines and uh, sometimes the feet and the head and things like that to keep, keep you know, what kept us going like that. And uh, we would also have milk and bread, and sometimes we wouldn't have anything but bread, because there's been times in our house we didn't have actual bread to eat, and then sometimes we just have bread and onions. But she worked hard. She was honest, a remarkable woman that taught us to stand up, regardless of the odds that was against us. Oh, run, run, Mona, run, bright angel above. Oh, run, run, Mona, run, bright angel above. If I just had your wing, bright angel above. If I just had your wing, bright angel above. I'd fly away to the kingdom, bright angel above. It fly away to the kingdom, bright angels above. Angel, lend me your wing, bright angels above. Angel, lend me your wing, bright angels above. Escape for your life, bright angels above. Escape for your life, bright angels above. If I just had your wing, bright angels above. If I just had your wing, bright angels above, I'd fly away to the kingdom, bright angels above. I'd fly away to the kingdom, bright angels above. Angel, lend me your wing, bright angels above. Angel, lend me your wing, bright 
Yeah, that was Fannie Lou Hamer singing uh, Run, Mourn, or Run. And before that, we did her talking about being a sharecropper. And I'm talking to, as my guest this evening, Mark Poirier, who wrote, who wrote I was about to actually produce this CD collection that I have in my hand right now, Fannie Lou Hamer, Songs My Mother Taught Me. And it's just really just wonderful just hearing her voice and and the relevancy, you know, as we were saying earlier, what she, you know, what she's singing about, what she's talking about. Yes, I think you know that 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 five minute segment is so full of information. Uh, I, you know, I get sort of stumped as to where to start. Um, it, it's it's amazing when you think she was the twentieth child in her family, the last child, That's twenty amazing. children. Which some people today would say, oh, my God, you know, they would think all kinds of horror stories or whatever of, you know, raising 20 children and what that was about or, you know, who knows what they might think. But the fact is that in Mississippi and in the Cotton Belt states at that time, post-slavery, there was actually a premium offered to sharecroppers who had large families and who had, you know, a, a birth and gave birth to additional children. Right. The simple reason being, as Mrs. Hamer mentioned, that was a worker. That was, you know, that's what the, the, the owners of the farms and plantations understood. This was a potential worker. So it, it's just, it boggles to mind, it boggles the mind of, I think, people today who are thinking, you know, raising two children or one child is enough, and and just how different our society is. But that piece alone, and then then her her recollection of the farm owner enticing her with candy to pick cotton, and that's something, and and that's yeah, and getting her as a child to start into labor, and and working in the field, and then by the time she's thirteen, she's doing the labor of an adult. You know, hundred pounds of cotton a day. So so I think. You know, with all the the uh, the sort of laissez-faire and and really, uh, you know, just slick talk that you hear about people of color in this country being uh, not carrying their weight, not doing this, not doing that, all the negatives, it it just falls apart when you hear these stories. It falls right, apart, and I yeah, mean, you know, these people. You know the the legacy here is that people struggled, be you know, it, it, against some amazing odds, amazing odds we, to we survive. We built this country. Every institution yes. that's out there, you can name them, were mm -hmm. created basically through our blood and toil. And to that, hear someone say, you know, that that we've gotten, you know, we had it easy or something like that is ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It's, it's it's really it's it's just. It's not just ridiculous, it's very much a, a, an assault. And it also, back to what I was saying earlier, it's buttressed by the lack of knowledge of right. these periods in time. Most people, at, when she was born in 1917, there was a huge, huge, well, we call it the Great Migration, out of the South, out of the agrarian South. Now, many history books will say, oh, this was about jobs in the North, in the industrial North. They don't tell you about the terror, the whole cloth terrorism that was being unleashed on black communities in the South with the lynchings, the killings with and impunity. Folks, right. You know, and and we've that, talked about that, that a was, number of times on here. But oh, that's I'm right. sure you have You're on right. the show. Yeah. 
that that was one of the forces why people left. If they had the means, they would leave. You know, I mean, if anybody would leave that. I mean, look at what's happening now with migration around the world where people are, are leaving countries that are in conflict. And, it's you know, it's a story that's repeated over and over again, you know, from Central America to to the African continent to Southeast Asia. You know, people are, are trying to leave places where they are under assault. And, and there are stories and how we present this to our public isn't always uh, – you know, very accurate, and it doesn't doesn't really tell the full story. But I, I'm getting off the off the point, and and just that. Oh no, you're you know, actually you're on the point. No, no, you're getting you're definitely on the point. Well, I, I want to stay focused on Mrs. Hamer and her life and and her impact. I I think yes, I, I telescoped out, but you know her her experiences uh, in Ruleville, Mississippi, and her as you've talked to the, her biographers. It is amazing, and and you realize that there were people in her community and in those counties in Mississippi that had access to the legislative process in our country. Um, they were the ones who could make the laws. They were the ones who could legislate and had the power to to really keep the, the essentially keep a a blanket over what was going on in those states from the rest of the country. Right. Um, and people just didn't know unless you were there. And as, as Mrs. Hamer uh, was, you know, such a big proponent of pulling back the sheet, so to speak, and showing people what's going on. When she spoke at uh, at the 64 convention, Lyndon Baines Johnson was so focused on getting his nomination and getting reelected, or, you know, elected, actually, for the first time after he was, in, you know, made president due to Kennedy's assassination, he preempted her testimony to the Credentials Committee with a totally bogus press conference to keep her, not anyone else, as Bob Moses said in a, in a documentary, Lyndon Bain Johnson's wasn't afraid of Martin Luther King. He was afraid of Fannie Lou Hamer at that point. He was terrified. That's of who he feared. He was terrified of that testimony because she talked about being beaten and and assaulted in a jail just for you know being a civil rights person and standing up for her rights and and there's a bigger story there i'm 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 glossing over a lot of the the, the details here but you know she was basically assaulted by state and local law enforcement kept incognito really just kept out of contact with the outside world no no phone call no no miranda rights just taken it and and told you're going to wish you were dead after we get finished with you and the, the really heinous piece is the law enforcement people forced two incarcerated black men to beat her oh it's so awful that whole story it's just something yeah it is it's just it's just amazing and you see how this this can you know again it just repeats it repeats we go over this territory again so it it's it's powerful her voice um as some people have said you know is um has has really motivated a lot of people and it's it's something and when i say people people at that time student nonviolent coordinating committee those folks were in Mississippi organizing within the black communities, the poor black communities, trying to get people to register to vote, which was their right. Okay, let's let's be straight yeah. up. That was their right. 
the the issue was that when you went to register to vote at the county seat or county courthouse, you were faced with many challenges and many obstacles, one of them being you could be stripped of any access to making a living by the farm owner that you were a sharecropper on. And that's exactly what happened to Mrs. Hamer. She came back from her first attempt to register and was told, pack up, take your family, get off the farm. And that's so fascinating. You know, I was impressed with the first, you know, when you open up the booklet and the CD, there's a picture of her marching after she's been evicted, but she's marching for voter Mm -hmm. registration. And that's that's incredible. Yeah. You know, like less than, what, a couple of hours from being evicted. You know, it's just, yeah, her determination just inspired so many people. Um, You know, and, and the other piece, she was just a regular I think this is something that really, really needs to be driven home to the population of our country right now. She had about a sixth grade education. She educated herself beyond that as best she could. She was not an, a, a you know, person who was ignorant. She understood the moral issues. She understood the social issues. She understood the ethical issues. She also understood that, as I've said before, and I'll say it again, that her life could have been taken with impunity by anybody. And repeatedly they shot into her house and other people in her communities, they being, you know, the, I'll say, the second tier of the white community who would essentially send these people out and say, take take these people out, like gangs, like gangsters. Right, that's all they want, you know. Yeah, drive-by shooting, shooting into a house blindly, you know, trying to blow up your home, blow up a church, doing all kinds of terroristic activity just to intimidate you and kill you, of course, let's be honest, uh, to remove any sense that you should feel empowered and to really keep people in a state of fear, a state of, of, uh, you know, inactivity, a state of of just, um, we talk now... yeah. Hopelessness, yeah, and and we talk now with with our veterans coming back from the recent wars, and the science is all there, and and it's post traumatic stress disorder, and we have not applied this concept or idea to these whole communities that were dealing with PTSD, whole communities, you know that, and and people again back to what they say, oh, you know these people are lazy, they can't function. Well, let let's let's subject your your community to this kind of behavior for a few generations and see how well you function for for a month not, not you know generations yeah but let's say for even a month or a week well yeah yeah i mean i'm just saying that you will feel the effects of, of it yeah right. of of that so her her ability to find uh a moral compass in christianity as she understood it um Again, look at what's happened in the last few decades or the last 30 years with this so-called Christian right, which which is is an anathema to the idea of Christianity. Yet, you know, oh, she yeah. was totally on the moral compass that this is what the good book says, and we are all people, and therefore, you know, we have these rights, and you must respect us as human beings, which is totally counter to everything that was going on in, in her state and in her home community. 
Um, and she wasn't the only one. Let's be honest. There are many people involved. I mean, Ella Baker. Uh, oh yeah. There was there was there was a lot of folks coming from outside of Mississippi. Thousands, yeah, just thousands and thousands yeah. of folks. People, yeah, you know, but yeah. and it's fun. You know, it's, it's, I hear you speaking. And, you know, listening to this this week, listening to the CD this week, and listening to it again this afternoon before we did the show. You know, I'm struck by the fact of what. Um, Megan authored a book, um, the biography this year on Fannie Lou Hamer that I had on here. Mm-hmm. How she said, and it's kind of, it's very sad, and I don't know if you've read her biography yet. Yes, I've read a couple. She, I haven't read Megan's, but I've read a couple of her biographies. Yeah, you should really read that because it, it talks about when they do this dedication near Fannie Lou Hamer's home. They do this memorial, and this was uh, only a couple of years ago. And how... You know, the author is saying that she could sense the people didn't understand Fannie Lou Hamer's real role in American history, that a lot of these folks there at this tribute were looking at her as, you know, similar to how they treat, you know, the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. now. You know, this Mm -hmm. grandmotherly-like woman who wasn't too bright, who did something at the 64 convention, but that's it. I was just saying, what you're describing, and especially with, with Martin Luther King and any of the civil rights leaders, is it's really a reductionist um, process to remove any complexity, any of the really profound things that happened during those years, and to really reduce it to something that is is essentially a soundbite. I'll, I'll just say this: I I was listening to some news uh, after one of the shootings of young black men, and there were you know some conservative folks being interviewed, and right. without fail, three of these I don't even remember. I, it's not worth naming them. But this is what they said. Martin Luther King, and then they went on with the statement. Martin Luther King, and then they went on with the statement. And it was like, well, just by saying Martin Luther King, they were trying to, you know, the the, the real process was they were trying to clothe themselves in some kind of righteousness. They were trying to say, oh, you, know, yeah. I, I'm, you know, they were trying to remove all negativity from them and what they said after his name, which was very negative and very counter to to the issue of, a person being gunned down, um, you know, unarmed, the whole, we, we don't need to go into that narrative, or we could, but, you know, the whole thing, I'll just, I'll just point to the young, young kid in, in Ohio who's gunned down with a toy gun uh, as an example. I mean, how can that be justified? And yet it's, it's justified. So we, we have what's happening in our culture, and unfortunately, it's it's all marbled through our our education system is we've reduced these stories to these manageable bits of information that don't offend and don't really challenge anyone to think critically about what happened in the history past and historic past and and it just it's yeah it's like what i learned in in the 60s and in in grade school when history books didn't even mention African Americans. You know, it's 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 no, we, almost just the same. Unless we stuff. were in the field. 
you know, yeah. books, you know. Well, it wasn't even that. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I, yeah, I, I'm going to digress, but we're talking about the same thing in a sense. And listeners, you can join in the conversation at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Mark Perrier, curator for the Smithsonian Institute and the producer of the new CD on Smithsonian Records, uh, Smithsonian Folkways Records, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer's Songs My Mother Taught Me. Well, you know, I had on here last year uh, Charlie Cobb, one of the civil mm-hmm. rights veterans and legends, and he wrote a new book about, it's basically about guns in the civil rights movement. Yes, I'm and I asked him a question. Yeah, and I asked him a question near the end of our conversation about what does he feel about the legacy and how he's, you know, how he and everyone else is being portrayed in the history books, on television, you name it. And he was so angry. You can hear the anger. He kept mm-hmm. his cool, but he was really angry about how he's been treated. You know, just basically tossed aside. Like, okay, you know, they they did something. These college students went down south, and they got people to vote the end. That's it. That's it. And and you know, we we you mentioned you know Cheney, Goodman, and Schwermer, and many students in the college undergraduate program have blank faces. They don't oh, understand yeah. oh, it. And if any of them do understand anything about that, they'll go, oh, they were killed. But what was the context? What was the larger context? Who killed them? How was their, you know, how were their bodies discovered after they were buried in a levee? You know, what did it take? What process did it take? It wasn't the local law enforcement. It was, you know, federal agents who really were pretty ambivalent in amongst themselves, but were trying to look like they were doing their job. You know, but right. it was other people outside of the system who were pushing and demanding that people move on this, to, that found those three gentlemen who had been killed. I, I, You know, Cobb's book brings to mind another thing that Fanny related in her biographies, that when she was in the field as a child, her mother carried a pistol in her, her lunch tin. And That's right. That's the thing. Yeah, her mother carried a pistol, and and they're out there picking cotton, working in the field. And think about this. The mom is carrying deadly force, a revolver. Now, the reason she was, Fanny related a story, Mrs. Hamer, excuse me, related a story that one day this guy rides up on a horse, not the farm owner, just, you know, someone working on the farm, and says to Mrs. Hamer, I'm going to take this girl. wasn't one of Mrs. Hamer's children. Uh, this, I mean, Mrs. Townsend, Fanny's mother. It was, uh, it was another woman who was working. You know, Mrs. Townsend, Fanny's mother, was basically in charge or you know, right. supervising these children. And the guy said, "I'm going to take this girl." Now, what was he going to take the girl for? Let your imagination run wild. Young girl, adult white man on a horse. Okay, it. It just so incensed Mrs. Townsend that she turned to the gentleman and she said, you don't know, you don't have any business, I'm paraphrasing again, you don't have any business with this girl, You've got no, you don't know her, and if you get off of that horse, you and I are going to have an issue. And he knew, obviously, that Mrs. Townsend wasn't playing. She would have popped no, in his son. Yeah, oh, yeah, she would have pulled out her gun and shot this man to protect that young girl. Now, that's the kind of experience that that you know Fannie Lou Hamer had as a child that gave her this sense of self 
to to really stand up and challenge this kind of whole you know really just just lawlessness there's no there's no other way to put it this was lawlessness um and it it it's it's an amazing story cuz you're right i mean mr cobb talked about you know martin luther king had bodyguards with him too that that mr yeah, cobb time, he, had, he used to have, he had a rifle in his house he had a shotgun initially yeah you had to you i'm, I'm sorry you you really had to there was no two ways about it there was no two ways about it but you're you in see, a battle zone you is, better have something yeah, the reduction is is done that that somehow they used the nonviolent trope to make it seem like people were defenseless, uh, that they had you know stood there and took the of course they did in those demonstrations took the full brunt and force of the police forces and the citizenry, uh, white citizenry who are attacking them, because it was about showing them morally that they were wrong that the whole right. concept that they were living with was wrong. However, when it came to your personal safety in your home, in your vehicle, when you traveled, many of these people, that was that was one of the reasons a lot of them survived, because people knew they were armed and they would fight back. Yeah. They would fight back in a, in a second. In a second, yes. You know, they, and, and those, again, those stories and the, those accounts don't always come to the fore, uh, I mean, uh, I'll tell us go well, about account, the history. The accounts that people want to hear, and I've had, I had a, uh, a film critic on here last year, and we talked about Mississippi burning, because that's the account mm-hmm. that people want to hear. Yeah. That you had these black folks cowering in their homes in the corner crying, and then two white saviors come to rescue them, who happen, yeah, who happen to be the FBI. The, yeah, and then it becomes an attorney in the court who's who's taking their issue, and and I don't want to you know minimize part of those stories of of the you know the lawyers and people in the legal field who who were allies and and took the risk to themselves to right. fight for this. However, I've never seen anything come out of Hollywood or the American film industry that has ever captured what has happened in American history. I mean, there have been attempts, uh, you know, throughout history. I think it was John Ford. It was Sergeant... Um, Sergeant Rutledge. R- yeah, Ruffledge. Sergeant Rutledge. Woody which Strode, is, again, one of my favorite movies. It was oh, Woody yeah. Strode, another court case played out on a court-martial accusing the black man of assaulting a white woman. You know, the narrative right. that runs through our country, everybody has it in their head. And and there's always this quick response, this knee-jerk response, and and that movie tried to to really show the nuances of what was going on. However, it was one of many movies, and you don't, you know, it's not played that often. But I'm, what I'm really getting is that, you know, even even the most recent depiction of Twelve Years a Slave, the Solomon Northrop story, was right. reduced, and and I'm I'm really proud of of uh, Steve McQueen and all the people who worked on the movie, uh, you know, the actors, everything. I mean, it, it, you can't argue against it. However, if you read Solomon Northrup's account, That's the thing you I realize, read his narratives. You realize how much of an intellectual he was, Solomon Northrup was, and how he was able not only to, to endure 
but to think his way out of the predicament he was in, to understand that, you know, many people, what they know is that, you know, the slave owner is being affected by this institution as well. Because right. underneath all the rhetoric and BS that people have, have talked about, we were all human beings. And you cannot, when you're living that close with people, living in that much intimate space, you can't miss that point. And so a lot of a lot of these things, yeah, are are they try to gloss over that that these were, and you know, God, it, it really it it blows my mind. Um, but yes, I I just I could go on and on. I want to ask you to play a track though. Um, sure. Track number five, all the pretty little horses. Can I now put this that is, on here because I have to download. I have a limit. I didn't download that one. I downloaded. Okay. Oh, what do you have can I, wait a minute. Hold it. Let's see if we actually put that on here. Because I put every. Oh, I got Certainty Lord, City Call Heaven. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't put that one on here. Well, let's In the mass with the meetings. City Called Heaven. I think it would be well, good for, for the audience to, to hear another another song by Mrs. Hamer. And, and, and this is, again, her singing a cappella. And did you get any of the download, any of the tracks where she's singing with a congregation? Oh, yeah. In fact, the meeting, oh, I was going to conclude with the meeting speech, the mass okay, meeting. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. But let's because listen that to one city, is... for city Called Heaven. All right. Let's do that now on the Root and Root Show. Let's hear Fannie Lou Hamer, City Called Heaven. I am old pilgrim of sorrow. Tossed in wide world alone I have no hope for tomorrow I'm trying to make heaven my home Called heaven. 
negative, 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 and people are being killed and people are being assaulted. She, you, you know, your own, if you were Mrs. Hamer, you, in that incident in the Winona jail where she was assaulted and people there with her were assaulted, the screams, the, you know, the beatings people took, they beat a, a you know, a teenage woman in that jail as well. And, and it, it is just... And if anyone has not read about really that know about that, that jail... What happened in mm-hmm. that jail? I would suggest my listeners, you know, pick up a book and read it. Read Fannie Lou Hamer's biographies. You know, just anything about that whole situation, because there were many more yeah. like that. Many, many yeah. more. And the thing, and I want to ask you something, Mark. I'm, you know, because as I listen to her, not only with your CD, but in the past with the uh, Voices of the Civil Rights Movement CD, the thing that always strikes me is how the music. The spirituals kept folks going, and I look at you know, and I've heard criticism in the past year about well, we don't need to sing at these rallies we do about Ferguson or you know just you name it. What's been going on lately? Yeah, but I believe that those you don't have to be Christian, you don't have to be any faith, but the 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 songs they have power in them and they keep people going. And I That's wonder what exactly you think about right. that. Yeah. I think you're 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 right that the songs keep people going they create solidarity they they create a, a atmosphere of really sustaining people in in a sense that you know in any in any mass movement in any crowd it, you know any situation there are those people who are timid we have all the personality types the extroverts right. the introverts the people who are just followers, the people who would like to instigate violence or what have you. You have every, you know, I don't care what the situation is. Those, that's just nature, human nature. But these songs at that time during the Civil Rights Movement really helped those people who may be a little ex- introverted, a little timid, a little unsure of why they were taking the risk. And, and uh, you know, that word risk is so important. I mean, you know, it is. It, it, it's... It's, again, this thing, the way people who were in these situations are characterized. Uneducated, blah, 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 you know, they, were, they didn't know anything. They, they couldn't spell their names. They were illiterate. But they took risk. That was beyond anything the people who were really going at them with violence wholeheartedly would do. They didn't take any risk. Those people... Those right. people who were using violence against the civil rights workers, there was no risk to them. There was no oh, risk no, until that's... the federal government showed up. And even then, they could, you know, attenuate that risk through the legislative people that were in Washington. And so you, it's, just, it's just amazing that people don't understand that, that, that we talk about, you know, this, this part of our history and how much people put on the line to achieve something so basic a, as the right to vote, and just you a, see, just a simple, yeah. simple right. It, it, yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a simple right, but it's it's a profound right in the history of this country and the ideas that everybody spouts about democracy, et cetera, et cetera. It is one of it's it's one of the linchpin parts of that concept and that idea. So back to what you're saying about songs. I mean, these songs really, and, and Mrs. Hamer was one of those people who could steal a group of people with her song. When people were moving oh, yeah. into a situation where they were facing policemen, facing potential violence, her voice was one of the voices 
that was it was it was like you know it was like armor and and it it gave people the courage it gave people the calmness it it focused them to move forward and and it's it's amazing i mean her her singing in that song too just the her vibrato the timbre of her voice um it's chilling you know cuz many yeah, many. I mean, let's let's not even think about the the lyrics. Let's just think about the timbre of her voice and and compare it to uh, maybe a pop singer of today. And her vibrato, her ability to hold that note in pitch and just hold that vibrato in that particular cut is is amazing compared to what people are doing with their voices today with all the technology. Um, That's right. Because you know, they're depending so much on tech talent, technology, and or else they're you know wavering because they can't hold a pitch, so they're they're wavering around the pitch, which is considered right. somehow you know, that's the aesthetic now. However, she's able to hold this pitch at the end of you know a city called heaven, you know, and and it just it it's it's just so powerful because it's it's it so it's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's this just is really something. yeah that is that is something that I think a lot of people miss when they're listening to the voices, not just the people speak, uh, singing spirituals, but people singing the blues, people listening who are singing jazz. You know, there's there's a lot of people. It sounds like a black person. Well, that that essence of that timbre, that quality of voice, which many people are imitating now, that's what it is. That's why, you know, for a long time you'd hear a voice and go, "I know that's an African American person singing," and and you know, again, technology and people practicing and working have have been able to imitate that, just like everybody can imitate things today. But it it was those sounds, those qualities of voice that really I think were were moving and so distinct. They they resonated around the world. I mean, you know, you think about it. That was that's the sound that brought people from, you know, the European continent all the way to the Japanese and, you know, the other Asian cultures. That's the sound that they're treasuring now. That's what they're buying. You know, it's it's. And it's, it's funny like you mentioned wanna... uh, as far as Asian because um, yeah. I just got, um, in fact, I'm, I'm going to have this CD played on here probably in the next month or so. The You know, the number one, one of the top five, Gospel CDs that are out right now is the Japanese Mass Choir. There you go. From Tokyo, go. It's, it's incredible. It, yeah. It's just really and, incredible. And you talk about imitation, and and you know the that that imitation is is somewhat of a compliment. It could be seen that way. Some people see it as appropriation. I mean, right. I I don't have an answer for everybody on this. Um, I think. What you are seeing with this, especially in cultures that imitate or or like to imitate something else that they find and they they treasure, such as the gospel choir of Japan, um, the mass choir, is you're seeing people really this mu- this music resonates to them, whether they understand the history. Everybody in that choir has has you know read or or research the history to understand what they're singing and, and the profoundness of what they're doing. I can't say, but I can say that, you know, there are 
attracted to this, investing the time, investing the energy, investing, investing the money. A lot of energy. A right. lot of energy. And, I, and, and I can tell you this, Mark, to, to do this. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, Mark, mm-hmm. you know, for 10 years I hosted a gospel program on KUVO in Denver, Colorado. And okay. I used to get calls when I would play them, say Fannie Hulu Hamer, you can name Aretha Franklin, anyone, the, you know, the Swan Silvertones, any of the old gospel in particular. I would get yeah. calls from atheists. Most of my calls were from atheists, people who did not go to church, who didn't believe in God, but they were moved. They were moved by, you know, by the Spirit, by what they heard in the songs. And they would tell me mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and they had yeah. never heard that before. And it's really, you know, it's something. It's in the songs there. And Fannie Lou is the, you know, she's one of the essences of that, if I can say that. And the other thing yeah. about Fannie Lou is that, and we talked about this earlier this year, but the fact is that people have to remember she was not just a civil rights activist. She worked on women's issues. She traveled the world. That's she correct. She was a close friend of Malcolm X. Exactly. She'd met she was even in the environmental movement. She talked about environmental issues. It was not just civil rights. She was, you know, a worldly person, a real scholar, even though she never had a degree. Mm-hmm. She, she was a very, very important person in American history, not just African American history. Not, you know. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's a, a very good point. I think, and it, it's a, it's really cogent to the, to who she was is that you know she met Malcolm X in New York both of them were on fundraising uh events and she met Malcolm X and and again the narrative is you know the general narrative is that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King or let's say Malcolm X's uh vision and agenda did not mesh with the the uh, nonviolent agenda that there was somehow conflict well, you know, there may be disagreement, but to read about how she met him and what her thoughts were, what they shared with in their discussions, as you said, it was very scholarly. It was very profound. Um, you know, she she's met many celebrities, uh, Muhammad Ali. Um, Oh yeah. She was she was you're right, a lady of the world. Uh, she took one trip after the um the Democratic uh convention and people's spirits were really really in in uh a bad place. They were very low after that because no one in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party achieved a voting delegation seat with on the Mississippi state delegation because there was so much compromise going on and so much mechanization going on behind the scenes with, you know, Hubert Humphrey and all these other people that the delegation was more or less like a lot of these things happened. People were split. They split the delegation and they split people by who was willing to compromise and who wasn't. That's right. And and Mrs. Hamer was not willing to compromise. So she was basically marginalized, pushed out of meetings, no no longer invited to meetings, and not at the table when decisions were being made. So many of those people went home, and they were very low-spirited. Well, you know, a champion of a lot of the civil rights movement and a lot of social justice, Harry Belafonte funded a trip for them 
uh, to Africa, and that was her to first Ghana. experience. I think yeah, I think she to, went to Ghana. Ghana to Guinea as well, and it was her right. first experience outside of the United States. So, so you you know you realize that when she returns to the United States, like many people of African descent who go to the continent, they go to the continent of Africa, whatever country they visit, they realize it's an eye opener because you 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 see functioning society that is not totally uh, dysfunctional around people's skin color. It's not dysfunctional around race. It may be dysfunctional around, like any culture, around some other issues, uh, wealth, uh, you know, all these other social issues, uh, hierarchical dysfunction and that sort of thing, but it wasn't about skin color. So it's it's just an it's an eye opener. It's it's really a, oh, yeah. a you know it and, just and when, cause it, when you oh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, what she said too is that she was so amazed to be when she first went to Ghana. She met uh, Kwame Nkrumah, and she was just mm-hmm. in awe because she had never met a a black you know leader of anything, let alone a country. Mm-hmm. And she said she was just in awe, and just she saw so many people. You know, uh, that were of her color and darker than her, and just in leadership roles. And it just, like, amazed her. Yeah. And it just fired yeah. her up when she got back. Yeah, and, and you, you realize, um, you know, how much of our predicament in the United States of America being such a powerful country that we we are constantly pushing out, image constantly pushing out, uh, of course, our military power. We're, we're we're pushing out, you know, wealth concepts of wealth, the standard of living that we claim that is higher than anything else in the world, which is bogus. Of course, when you travel, you realize that's not true. Um, but we have, yeah, yeah. It, it it's such a profound thing to step out, and for someone coming from her background to step outside and see this country from a different perspective is so powerful. Um you know, it it just it's um her life is, is really in many ways a model for what people could imagine today with as we said right. with, with the with the assault and the um the essentially the the whole cloth assaults on black communities especially uh black communities that I'll say are at risk not simply because there's dysfunction in the community. They're at risk from the external. They're at risk from, as many people have said it better than me, the police are not there to serve and honor or honor and serve. They're there to police. That's that's what they see their role. That's their role. And that goes that's back to role. the 19th century. Well, actually, exactly. the 18th to century enforce. with the patty rollers, and that's oh, a whole yeah, different yeah. show the there. It's, it's Simply to enforce, and so that's why you have a 20-something-year-old police officer with a sidearm jumping out of a car, falling on his face in a park in Ohio, shooting a 12-year-old, Tamir, who has a toy gun. Now, I played with toy guns. I imagine you played with toy guns. Oh, yeah. And and to think that, that, you know, when I reflect back on my childhood... And I grew up in Washington D.C., which was no yes, I no, did also. What, yeah, what no part of nest town? of liberalism. 
that you know my goodness that could have been you know what if that right. was I was the times right now and who what american child doesn't want to play as much as we glorify the gun in this culture doesn't want to play with a gun right. you know you have to work as a parent hard to keep a gun from your child the idea of playing with a gun it's it's you really see difficult constantly and you want you know we grew i guess we grew up in the same era cuz i grew up in the 60s also and yeah, I played yeah. with guns, and I, I just imagine yeah, what would yeah. happen if someone rolled up on me in in, in the uh, Brooklyn part of town where I grew up, and oh yeah, a cop you know, just sure. shoots me and, for no reason. Reason, yeah, or or you know, treat you as if I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. This is a child, you know. These these are kids who don't even you know they're adolescents. They're they're not even adolescents. They're pre-adolescent. In, right. in Tamir Rice's instance, and you have to, you just it boggles the mind that you know here this guy's in this car. Two officers had all that technology with them. They could have talked to this kid from the car with a you know a hundred feet away, far out of range of a pistol. They could have said, "Put down whatever you have in your hand. We're going to approach you." They you know, they could have given a command. They could have asked a question. There were you know. Many things they could have done other than just from a, a right. yeah, just roll out of the car and act like they were facing somebody or more than one person with automatic weapons. Because that's really how that guy looked when he rolled out of the car. He hadn't even really put the car in park almost. You know, he just oh no, he he dove out. He dove he dove out as if you know there were already bullets coming at him. And it, <laughs> and I don't want to again. I'm on this track, but. I want to focus back on that. Uh, the track I'm, that you're on is something we we get on all yeah. the time on this show because it's no problem with you doing that, Mark. It's, it's yeah. really fine because it's all connected. All of this is connected. It is all connected, and and I chuckle because it's is as a person who is reflecting, and I reflect on this a lot. I mean, uh, to to you know, I have children. I have you know, reflect on my own childhood and where we are now as a country. And it, it really pains me that, that um, you know, we are where we are now as a nation. I, um, you know, I've been teaching for over 10 years at, at, as an adjunct in undergraduate education at University of Maryland. And uh -huh. in those, that decade plus time, I have watched young students of all class and ethnic backgrounds come into my classroom and when I asked them did they have any African American history courses, did they study anything about African American history you know, out of 30 students maybe I get two hands up of course, if you ask and I bet them, you get this too yes, I bet you ahead. get this other thing that I got when I was a guest lecturer at the University of Northern Colorado back in the 90s Mm -hmm. A lot of the students I had in my class, which was the Afro-African-American Studies class, said they took it because they thought it would be easy. Exactly. Exactly. They thought and they it learned would be a easy valuable lesson from me about that, how easy it was. Yes, yeah. And and also that, that um, and this is, this is something, as I'm sure you understand as an educator and a scholar, that after the civil rights era, many of these institutions of higher learning 
did something that everybody thought was profound. They started Hispanic studies, African American studies, Asian studies, um, women's studies. You know, but they combined women's studies. But do you know what the the other side of that that issue was? Is that they were putting these programs in a position to be marginalized. Right. And and historic and looking at the historic gloss, that's what happened. Um, I always like to tell people, you know, you could have a, a Ph.D. in history in the United States from an Ivy League college and not know one iota about people of color in this country, not have read one book, not have had to reference anything of their experience or anything of their contribution or anything of their impact, and and you could still achieve the highest degree Oh, yeah. In higher education. And that, that's so, a show in itself. I'm, you, you're thinking, yeah. you know, because I have debated about I am going to have a show about that because that's a fascinating subject. Yeah, and we're going to We're going to have a show on that, that you know, because let alone knowing about Fannie Lou Hamer, just think about all the people in the whole movement that people don't know about. Yeah, yeah. It's, and real, the, it's just amazing. It's amazing, too, because we, we have this, you know, around the um, issue of the attacks and the assaults by law enforcement in the black community. And people are throwing their hands up as if this has never happened. And you mentioned this is like right. the patty rollers back at the turn of the century uh, post-slavery. This was what was going on in Reconstruction. You know, at the end of World War One, soldiers come back who have fought gallantly for the concept of freedom fought overseas and what happens they're assaulted 1919 the bloody summer yeah, the you know summer. all over this yeah, country race riots attacking men in uniform world war Two, a repetition of the same thing men come back from world war Two, they are immediately assaulted for standing straight like they were trained to by the military and wearing their uniforms in these communities they are immediately Attacked as if they're, you know, you can't be this, you can't be that. Right. Uh, you know, so it it is, it's it's really insidious how this this happens. And I I think um, back to I just want to stay on this point of of the marginalization in the education system. That that if we could get to this place where, uh, as a nation, you know. You learn about Sand Creek Massacre of Native Americans in Colorado. Right. You learn about, you know, uh, Gabriel Prosser. You learn about Denmark Vesey in South Carolina, who practically set that state upside down by his trying to get to Florida and take people to freedom. You learn that, you know, the slaves were not complacent. There was always conflict. You learn that the Second oh. Amendment to right to bear arms has been totally bastardized in its way it's presented to us today. It was about controlling the enslaved population. That's it was it simply is. that. It was nothing else. It wasn't about individual right to bear arms. It was about no, the right of the states to... Yeah, the states' rights. The southern states had the right to to bring up a standing militia in the case of a slave revolt, because we didn't have internet, we didn't have telephone in this country. That technology didn't exist. You had to put somebody on horseback, or if there was a rail, get them to the federal government 
to get word that, oh, we're getting an uprising, we need to have you know right. soldiers here. So that was what the second – and the fact is it's in the – Record. It's in the congressional record, the debate. So all these people who, you know, talking smack about their congre- you know, the Constitution and their rights, need to be called out, and and just shown yeah, the documents. And I, you know, it's you know, just not going to happen. Like you said, it's right there. The history is right there. It's right it's there. Nothing made yeah, you up. You can see it's who there. debated, <clears throat> and who was who was arguing against, you know, the Second Amendment. Who was arguing for it, and why? And it wasn't about I need a right to have, you know, a long rifle in my house. It was about the fact that we are at risk because we have enslaved people who are going to uprise and fight for their rights as human beings. In other words, we know we're it, wrong. Right. It was it was part of that is, well, is and that's the whole point. They know yeah, they're wrong. Acknowledgement of guilt. Yes. And and we're going to enforce our our dysfunction with. With with deadly force. That's simply it. You That's know. It. So it, the, it is. And folks it's, know they're wrong as far as I know in their hearts they know they're wrong as far as it, how they're teaching the history of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. It gets back yeah, to you yeah. know as we get back to Fannie Lou Hamer and conclude this segment. It's just you know, that's the whole thing, and that's why I constantly hammer folks. If I use a bad pun, hammer, 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 but. About knowing your history, that's why I created this show many years ago, and I will talk about Fannie Lou Hamer repeatedly again and again. So at least somebody gets the point. Yeah, and and there's another, a few things before we close, a a few points I want to make about Mrs. Hamer. Sure. One of the things that, that before Freedom Summer came about, the members of the Student Nonviolent Committee in the South had meetings because they were really in a quandary whether they should allow white college students from all over the country to come south to help them. And and many people in the SNCC, SNCC, you know, a number of, there was a camp that was totally against that because they felt this is an issue right. of African Americans. We don't want white people coming down here. And you can imagine the reasoning there. You can imagine the reasoning why, because we see it today with, with you know, the so-called liberal or progressive who will only go so far but is always trying right. to ameliorate something and say, oh, it's not that bad, or, you know, trying to, well, here's, here's, the, here's the, the encapsulation, all lives matter. That encapsulates that, that frame of thinking. You know, when people say black lives matter, the implicit too is there. But then to have someone say, but all lives matter, and try to take the wind out of that and also ignore, you know, just ignore that there's an implicit T-O-O at the end of that, you know, that black lives matter. So that was a... These folks know that. Yeah, they they know it. And it was a big debate within the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Mrs. Hamer said to them, if we are fighting segregation and we're going against segregation... It makes no sense that we segregate because we're no better than they are. And it was one of those things where you see, again, this person who has lived through so much brutality, so much injustice, but she still has this vision and optimism to say that, you know, there are some people out there that get it, and we should not shut them out. We can't shut them out. Now, you know, that's a whole other show about talking about how they 
you know, really worked, SNCC worked to get these young students to understand what oh, they were yeah. coming to, to understand that, you know, just because they had white skin and lived in Michigan or lived in New York City or New York State or New Jersey or whatever, they weren't going to be treated like they were at home because they were associating with the wrong people in those southern states. And by that, just that association, they were taking on a huge risk. And, you know, it's it's so compound it's so complex it's 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 um, another yeah, yeah. show of this. And, um, yeah. There's a guy I think his name was Bruce Walton but he wrote this book I interviewed him about god 7 8 years ago called Freedom Summer where he talks mm-hmm. about all that. Yeah. It's yeah, fascinating. Yeah. yeah and they you know there was so much training going on they were they had to they had to shock these students into uh you know experiencing the brutality before they would let them go out into the communities because, right. you know, it was just like you can't go. Uh, it, it's 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 something, again, that repeats again and again throughout our culture. You know, somebody wants to do good and they go do something, they might go to another country, whatever. And then they get there and they're like, oh, my God, I didn't know it was this bad. Or, or oh, you know, I thought this was going to be oh, yeah. easy. You know, I was just going to have to, you know, do a little of this and a little of that this summer, you know, and – this sort of volunteer spirit and the community service thing, and not understanding how great you're in a war zone. You're stepping in a war yeah, zone. You're in a war zone. You're you're in a serious conflict that that people take so seriously they will take your life over the issues they are they are in conflict about. I, I Greg, I just want to say thank you for having me on the show. Um, well, I, well, I got to get you back go. on here. I really um, have to get you and, back on and, here sometime. Yeah, you're really yeah, a great sure. guest, and I, you know, and it really there's a lot of history. And I hope my listeners, you listen to this, you know, because I, and I have to tell you this, uh, Mark. Anytime I do a show about the civil rights movement, Fannie Lou Hamer, you name it, Robert mm-hmm. Moses, and all, I usually get feedback via the internet after the fact. Okay. And it's always people saying, "Well, I was listening, and so intense." With your guess and the intensity of it, that I didn't get a chance to call in, but I really love that. So mm-hmm. I know this show is really going to be appreciated. Oh, I'm glad of that. I, and and just you know, this is this is a very important. I want to say something about the disc. Um, right. Uh, just in closing, Fannie Lou Hamer songs. My mother taught me is the name of the disc. It's pr- put out by Smithsonian Folkways Recordings in their African American legacy recording series. And that series is a is a imprint that is being produced in cooperation with the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which will oh, open man. next year on the National Mall. That's right. So and and to any educators that are listening or anybody who is hungry for knowledge and really would like to hear first-hand accounts of our history, Smithsonian Folkways Recordings has an amazing, is an amazing resource. They have amazing recordings. They have... Oh, um, they're so great. I mean, really, like I said, I have a collection of some of them. Yeah, it's very deep. I mean, one of the things I I thought about before calling in was to mention, you know, that they even have, you know, the, the now deceased but esteemed actor Ossie Davis doing a recitation of of uh you know speeches by famous African American oh, yeah. leaders um they have early early recordings of African American poets 
before they were, you know, published and, and well-known. They have so much information besides music. They have a lot of, of recordings, of, of field recordings, one that I listened to uh, when I did a project many years ago going through the African-American recordings or African-American uh, material was was very informative, and it was someone who did field recordings in New York City talking to uh, Puerto Rican immigrants, and it was just amazing oh, to hear. Was this the Lomax first that was account. doing it? Was no, it, was it wasn't it Lomax. Lomax. This was, this was oh, somebody okay. else. It wasn't Lomax, and this was simply a talking about housing disparity in New York. And New York oh, man, City, like and, and these people, yeah, these people were giving an account of how they they were trying to get into a better housing situation, and so, you know, this kind of information and first-hand voices, yeah, are so important for for educators to bring to their students because when you read something in a book or you you hear something summarized maybe in a documentary and. But to you know to take the five minutes or six minutes or whatever and listen to an actual regular person tell of their experience is so much more powerful. So you know Smithsonian Folkways has has a the other really valuable piece to educators is all of the liner notes, including the liner notes for the Fannie Lou Hamer songs my mother oh, yeah. taught me, which you can download a PDF for free. You can get these liner notes, even even if you don't want to buy all the songs as a digital copies off the off the web. You can get the liner notes, which are chock full of information and are a great resource for people doing research. It's it's just uh, uh, it's part of our federal tax dollars. I'll put it that way. So anybody who's you know griping about taxes, Mark, needs and to, Mark, give them the again, website. A lot of folks. <laughs> yeah, give, okay, give them the website there. You can find all this information at folkways, F-O-L-K-W-A-Y-S dot S-I dot E-D-U. I'll say it again, folkways dot S-I dot E-D-U. And as many of you know are web savvy, the dot E-D-U is there because it is an institution of education. And that was what the Smithsonian is. So, so, you you, know, take advantage of these Mark, you are a master of education. I am really impressed. <laughs> I, I, I thought we were going to talk for about 20 minutes or so. I, I am really just impressed. Well, I know it would be kind of like this. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I, I, I always, know how, historians how always give the time. Yeah. I always I give the time when we're talking about history. Yeah. And I hope to yeah, meet really you sometime. So, Mark, thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. And thank you for having me on and taking the – Taking the initiative because I know you know you took the initiative to to search, seek out this and to contact oh, the marketing. Any, and by staff. the way, if anyone wants to reach you, or what if they want to reach you as far as maybe speaking somewhere, just what's your website? The, the I don't have a website. I I have to. I need to polish that up. The best way to reach me is uh, through my email address, which is my last name P U R. Y E A R followed by the number two at earthlink dot net. That's my current best way to reach me. And right. and until the, I, I improve upon that, because I really haven't gotten a um, an online uh, you know sort of place for myself yet. I I maybe am a little bit. Um, I won't even go into it, but I haven't done that yet, and I should. But that's the best way. to 
to reach me. <laughs> um, yeah, there are various reasons why I haven't moved moved on that. I mean, there's some, you know, there's if you Google my name, Mark Perrier, you'll find all the Mark Perriers out in the universe and the internet, and you'll find information about me and what I've done. But that's if you want to contact me directly, and and I hope your audience, you know, is is uh, considerate if they do and uh, make make a contact with me. All right, Mark. Thank you so much. I'll be talking to you later on. You know, thank you for everything that you do and keeping history alive. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and I hope you have a time to play a song on the clo- to close. Oh, I am. I definitely am. Thanks so okay. much. All be right. talking thank to you, you later. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. And that was Mike Por- uh, Mark Poirier, and he is the producer of the Fannie Lou Hamer CD collection songs my mother taught me on Smithsonian Folkways, and just a great, great fountain of knowledge. We could have done this show for the rest of the evening, for another for eight hours or so. I mean, we really, really enjoyed talking to him. We're going to definitely have him back on there. But right now I'm going to play another cut from this great CD, and I'm going to do... This is it starts this is the mass meeting speech. It starts out as a sermon, but then it gets into well you'll hear. It this is really it's the essence of Fannie Lou Hamer, I think, but let's hear that on the Root and Root show. Fannie Lou Hamer mass meeting speech. From the fourth chapter of Saint Luke, beginning at the eighteenth verse. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty to them who are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now the time have come that was Christ's purpose on earth. And we only been getting by by paying our way to hell. But the time is out. When Simon Serene was helping Christ to bear his cross up the hill, he said, must Jesus bear this cross alone and all the world go free? He said, no, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. This consecrated cross I'll bear till death shall set me free and then go home a crown to wear for there's a crown for me. And it's no easy way out we just got to wake up and face it, folks. And if I can face the issue, you can too. You see, the thing was so pitiful now about it. The men been wanting to be the boss all of these years. And the ones that ain't up under the house is under the bed. But you see, it's, it's, it's poison. It's poison for us not to speak what we know is right. As Christ said from the 17th chapter of Acts and the 26th verse says, has made of one blood all nations for to dwell on the face of the earth. Then it's no different. We just have different colors. 
And brother, you can believe this or not. I've been sick of this system as long as I can remember. <laughs> I've heard some people speak of depression in the 30s. In the 20s, it was pressing with me. <laughs> depression. I have been as hungry. It's, it's a funny thing. Since I started working for Christ, it's kind of like in the 23rd of Psalms when he said, Thou prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. And I have walked through the shadows of death. Because it was on the 10th of September in 62 when they shot 16 times in a house. And it wasn't a foot over the bed where my head was. But that night I wasn't there. Don't you see what God can do? Quit running around trying to dodge death because this book says he that seeketh to save his life is going to lose it in an So as long as you know you're going for something, you put up a life. That it can be like Paul. Well, so I fought a good fight. Yeah. And I kept the faith. You know, it's been a long time. People, I have worked. I have worked as hard as anybody. I have been picking cotton and would be so hungry. And one of the pardon things about it, wondering what I was going to cook that night. Yeah. All right. But you see, all of them things was wrong, you see. And I have asked God, I said, now, Lord, and you have to, and ain't no need to lie in your bed, said, open a way for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Said, please make a way for me. Yeah, yeah. Said, where I can stand up and speak for my race and speak for these hungry children. And he opened the way and all of them mostly back at home. You see, he made it so plain for me. He sent a man in Mississippi with the same man that Moses had to go to Egypt. Oh, yes. And tell him to go down in Mississippi. Yes. And tell Ross Burnett to let my people go. Yes. I was getting into that speech so much I just almost forgot to back on again, but that was Fannie Lou Hamer. There was a mass meeting speech, and you heard it started as a sermon, but it got into other things. But we're going to play some more songs by Fannie Lou Hamer on the Root and Root Show. I think we'll do, I'm going to do Precious Lord, Take My Hand. So let's hear Fannie Lou Hamer singing, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, the Thomas A. Dorsey song that he he wrote. And let's hear it. Actually, he wrote it from Hayes Jackson. That's another story there, but let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. I remember 10 years ago today, as I had walked about 10 or 12 feet out of Winona Jail, Reverend James Belvey informed me that Metka Evers had been shot in the back. It was six of us that had gotten out of jail in Winona. Some of us wasn't able to sit down. 
But I keep saying, Burley, and keep asking God to hold my hand, Charlie Evers, because I know if he hold my hand, everything will be all right. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. Yeah. 
when my brother turn his back on me. When my brother turn his back on me. When my brother turn his back on me. Jesus is my only friend. Jesus, Jesus is my only friend. Jesus, Jesus is my only friend. Jesus, Jesus is my only friend. Jesus is my only friend. And one other song I remember my mother would sing when I was a very small child and we would be out in the field uh, picking cotton. And, you know, looked like they would be looking for something better and she would express herself and other people would express themselves by singing some of the songs and, you know, look like we could work harder. And one of the songs my mother would sing is, I'm gonna land on the shore. I'm gonna land on the shore. I'm gonna land on the shore where I'll rest forevermore. The preacher in the pulpit with a Bible in his hand, he's preaching to the sinners, but they just won't understand. I'm gonna land on the shore. I'm gonna land on the shore. I'm gonna land on the shore where I'll rest forevermore. I would not be a white man, white as a dripping of snow. They ain't got God in their heart. The hilly shore must go. I'm gonna land on the shore. I'm gonna land on the shore. I'm gonna land on the shore. Where I'll rest forevermore. I would not be a sinner. I tell you the reason why. I'm afraid my Lord may call me. And I wouldn't be ready to die. I'm gonna land on the shore. I'm gonna land on the shore. I'm gonna land on the shore where I'll rest forevermore.
medley of songs there from the great Fannie Lou Hamer from their CD, Songs My Mother Taught Me, and that's the African American Legacy Collection on um, Smithsonian uh, Folkways Records CDs, and that was Certainly Lord. I hope you certainly enjoyed listening to the, and learning about Fannie Lou Hamer, as we did talk about other things. I was Certainly Lord before that. We did... Um, I'm going to land on the shore. Jesus is my only friend. Precious Lord, take my hand. I hope you enjoyed all those songs. That's well as the previous songs we did early on the Root and Root show. And I'm just happy that to meet and also talk to the to the curator at the Smithsonian Institute and also the producer of the CD, uh, Mark Perrier. And I hope to have him on again because we talked a little. If you, you know, I hope that you, you know, as listeners out there, that you will. Go read, go Google some younger folks or anyone. Just Google Fannie Lou Hamer's name. Some of the things we mentioned tonight, you know, just Google that and just learn a little more about something you didn't know about. And that's the whole purpose of this show is just to learn. Be it we talk about historical figures of American, of world history like Fannie Lou Hamer or we even do a whole show around blues or love songs. It's all about learning. And that's why we call it the Root and Root Show. Where we get at the root of issues as well as playing roots music, be it gospel as you heard this evening, spirituals, jazz, hip hop, soul, world music, country, blues, you name it. We do it on this show. And I hope you enjoyed what we did this evening talking about the great Fannie Lou Hamer. And, and I want to say something real quickly um, before we get on because we're going to get out of here. To change the subject, but not really, but it shows how we are treated as African Americans in this country. Um, the movie came out uh, Friday, straight out of Compton, about NWA. And I probably will go see it at some point. I'd rather see something else as far as maybe the public enemy story. But, you know, it would be interesting to see how they do this movie. But the thing that's getting me is that in some cities, they're bringing extra security to the theaters because they're afraid of violence. Now, meanwhile, it seems like the violence has been going on lately in movie theaters has been by white men, angry white men who have been racist and a little bit of everything. So I want to know if they're going to buck up the security also for some of these theaters that are showing things like Ant-Man or Fantastic Four, movies like that, or you know, or Woody Allen movie, anything, you know, because you don't know. You don't know, but I just was kind of offended when I saw that. I said, well, why don't you do it for everyone if you're going to do it like that? But it's a way just to incite folks and get them upset. And it wouldn't surprise me if there is some violence that is that is done in some of these theaters during the showing of NWA by some paid infiltrators, paid folks who are there just to incite problems, but... That's a, that's a topic for another show. That's a whole different topic, but we're going to get back to Fannie Lou Hamer here again, just saying that, you know, please pick up this CD and just learn about Fannie Lou Hamer, songs my mother taught me on Smithsonian Folkwaves records, CDs, and it's on the African American Legacy Collection. Great opportunity to learn about a legend of world history, who's not only a civil rights activist, but a human rights activist, environmentalist, women's rights activist, you know, just a, just worked on everything. And, you know, 
her legacy should be something everyone should have her name on their lips. And I you know, I've seen people talking about, well, you know, if they put if they change um I think it's a twenty dollar bill they're talking I've heard people talking about putting Harry Tubman on there. I would consider actually Fannie Lou Hamer. And I have nothing against Harry Tubman. In fact if she was put on there that'd be fine, but Fannie Lou Hamer is just a legend. And if you don't know about her, please read about her, listen to her music, get this CD, and just learn what you can about her. It's really an amazing person. So I'm just thank you. I'm thankful again to have Mark Poirier on here to talk about Fannie Lou and talk about other subjects. And I hope you enjoyed it, listeners, on the Root and Root Show. And I just, you know, if you're interested in following the program, and I'm getting a lot of followers as well as if you want to advertise on this show or you got an idea for a topic on the show, go to my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Unifix, like the old R&B group that we play on here from time to time on this show, at hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I C. S is in Sam. You can also go on the blogtalkradio.com site, look for Root and Root Show. Not the Root and Root Show, but they have it as Root and Root Show. Look for that, and you'll find it there. Also, you can go on iTunes to hear us anytime. And, of course, if you're in Colorado, my friends out there, you can listen on a delayed basis also on KUHS Denver Radio and Television. I hope you do that, but I just want to thank everyone who's listening and tuned into the show this evening. I hope you enjoyed it. And before we go, I think I'm going to play. You know, we've done Fannie Lou Hamer. I don't want to give the whole thing. I don't want to play all the songs. I don't want to get you out there to buy it. But I'm going to do real quickly because this is the birthday also. Today is the birthday of Oscar Peterson, the great pianist. So I'm going to play real quickly. And it's August 15th for those of you who Maybe listen to this later on. August the 15th is the birthday of Oscar Peterson. I'm going to play Oscar's Boogie. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Thank you. 
indeed, the one and only Oscar Peterson on piano, and that was Oscar's boogie. And, you know, Oscar Peterson, he used to sing back in the 40s when he first started out, but he stopped doing that and just concentrated on piano playing only because he sounded just like Nat King Cole. You hear him talking. You hear he, the few CDs out there that have him singing, and there's some some shows that he did in the 50s and 60s that people ask him to sing, and you hear it, and you say, my goodness, that is. And you can just look at his name. Just go on YouTube or something. You'll find that. He sounds just like Nat King Cole. He decided, no, I'm not going to compete. You know, I don't want people mixing us up So because he, he plays piano too, so I'll just concentrate on piano only. But that's the great Oscar Peterson, his birthday, August 15th. But I'm getting ready to get out of here now. This is Greg Rasheed with the Root and Root Show. Hope you enjoyed the show as we talked about the great Fannie Lou Hamer, the great human rights and civil rights world activist. But this is Greg Rasheed again. And next show, we're going to have John Podash on talking about the book Drugs Used as a Weapon Against Us. And that's going to be a great discussion. And then we're going to have, after that, on the next show, the great labor activist Bill Fletcher. So I hope you're enjoying us here on the Root and Root Show. So go in love and go in peace. We'll see you next time. Take care. (laughs) 